Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast. And this is going to be on GI applications in the acute abdomen. And this is a very classic CT topic and something I've uh, looked at carefully recently. And of course, when you think about the acute abdomen, it's a very simple definition a clinical syndrome characterized by sudden onset of severe abdominal pain requiring emergency medical or surgical treatment. So you could see that uh, CT would be ideal for this scenario because it's a decision-making process and CT always works very well in that scenario. If you look at some magic numbers, abdominal pain is the most common cause for an ER visit overall. Uh, it accounts for over 8 million of the ER visits each and every year. Now, we all know that there are many things you can look at in the acute abdomen from patients' age and sex and medical history and lab values and physical exam, all of which can help you make decisions when you're in the ER. So not everyone needs an imaging study, and surely not everyone needs a CT scan. And there's always been some controversy as to how do we know if CT is being used correctly? Is it being Overutilized. No one ever argues about underutilization, but the question always is overutilization. There was an article um, about uh, this topic by Larson a few years back that made the point that the use of CT in the ER increased fourfold over a 12 year period. Now, it's important to recognize you're looking at 12 years where many places did not have CT in the ER setting, and then they did. The quality of CT improves significantly, and our knowledge of what CT can do increase significantly. But nevertheless, the numbers are about a fourfold increase. But Larson does also make the point that it's not a surprise because CT is rapid, minimally invasive, and really allows you, whether it's a positive or a negative study, to manage the patients with confidence, both from a clinical and legal perspective. An article by Larson. A number of years before that actually looked at the specifics of the impact of CT and this is the year 2000 but look at their numbers amazingly good numbers reduced the rate of hospital admissions by 24 percent more timely surgery in 11 percent ruling out significant disorders in 26 percent and providing an alternative diagnosis in 26 percent those are indeed impressive numbers and when you look at one of the bigger summary statements from his article CT performed in the ER department increases the physician's level of certainty, reduces admissions by 23.8%, and leads to a more timely surgical intervention. Just the fact that you can reduce admissions by 23.8% really means that it's very cost-effective and used very well. But despite articles like that, people have not always been convinced. So about 11 years later, Jim Thrall and his team at Mass General wrote this article looking at the role of CT affecting patient management decisions in the ER, in the non-traumatic abdominal setting. In that study, the most common diagnoses were renal colic and bowel obstruction, which is typical for almost any ER. And look at their numbers. CT altered the lead diagnosis in 49% of patients, increased physician certainty by 70 to 92%, management plan changed in 42%. And again, the same thing. A quarter of the patients who were planned for surgery before CT ended up not getting surgery. Just incredible numbers. And their conclusion was that CT was ideal. And in fact, if I was looking at those numbers, I would wonder perhaps CT is being underutilized. If half the time it changes the decision process, 
I get a feeling it's not overutilization, it's really underutilization that we need to be concerned about. Now, Polar wrote an article about the same time which looked at a more specific topic in the ER, which was appendicitis. And one of the key points they made there, when you think about appendicitis, and you do CT, only about a quarter of the patients are going to end up with appendicitis, but CT found an alternative diagnosis in about a third of patients. And when CT was able to find a cause for the symptoms, invariably the clinicians could not find a cause, and a cause, in fact, was typically never found. And in that article by Polar, in 704 patients for whom CT did not suggest a specific diagnosis, the treating physician did not reach a specific diagnosis in 82% of the time. Now, Polar did mention some of the alternative diagnoses, which aren't surprising that CT picked up from GI uh, symptoms to stone disease and the like. And of course, when you look at men versus women, the big difference, of course, would be the um, and nexal processes that were picked up at about 18% of the time. So again, CT very strong at looking at what you're looking for, clinical suspicion of appendicitis in this example, but if you don't see appendicitis, it's not like it's yes or no for appendix. It may be yes or no for appendix, but in a third of the time, you're gonna find the reason that was clinically unsuspected. So again, CT frequently identifies an alternative cause for the patient's symptoms. Very, very important. Now, still you keep reading articles about how CT is overutilized. So another article, this article is in press, uh, looking at the Jim Thrall article, but instead of doing one site, now there are 10 sites to look at physician decision-making and uncertainty in the ER setting. And what they did is they looked at more than just abdominal pain. They looked at the big three, abdominal pain, chest pain, and headache. And look at their results. Physicians changed their lead diagnosis 51%, 42%, and 24% respectively. Confidence increased by about 25%. Admission decisions changed in almost a quarter of the cases. Across all indications, physician confidence before CT was inversely related to the likelihood of a change in leading diagnosis after CT, supporting the use of... Uh, diagnostic confidence as a measure of uncertainty, and moreover, after CT, diagnostic confidence level were uniformly high, over 95%. So again, it's not just making a diagnosis, but it's eliminating this uncertainty that becomes oh so critical. And so their uh, conclusion for common referral indications to CT in the ER setting, physicians diagnosed and admissions decisions change frequently after CT. This finding suggests that current ordering practices are clinically justified. Let me say that again. These findings suggest that current ordering practices are clinically justified. I think radiology often lacks proof of some of the things we do, and this article is a really good way and a good example of how we can strengthen our case. And here's just a chart from that article, which you can look at on your free time, but it makes all of the points I just uh, made with a very nice graph. Now, in looking at the patient with the acute abdomen, there are many things I can do. And uh, one of them I could do, of course, is go through different topics like I could say, let's discuss liver abscesses, or let's discuss emphyseminous cholecystitis, or splenic abscesses, or appendicitis, or appendix epiploica. 
I could discuss many different topics, but I'm not going to do that in the sense that we could spend about you know, 100 hours going through very specific topics in CT of the acute abdomen. I'm going to look at several very specific topics and discuss only those. And that'll be sort of a good way of thinking about the acute abdomen, recognizing that there are many ways of approaching this topic. So first thing is, let me at least talk about protocols. To us, short of stone disease, IV contrast is critical. We like to give about 100 cc's, depending on patient size injecting around 5 cc's a second. We like to use oral contrast. You could use positive or neutral contrast depending on the scenario. Uh, if patients can't get IV, we always use positive contrast. Now, when we decide what contrast to use, if we're looking at things like ischemic bowel or looking at the pancreas, liver, or kidneys directly, we often will use water only. If we're looking at possibilities like perforation of fistulas or processes like that, then we'll use a positive contrast and use oral omnipake. And this is a nice example where positive contrast works oh so well. We have a patient with a pneumoperitoneum. You can see very nicely the pneumoperitoneum, but also the source of the patient's um, pneumoperitoneum, and you can see the contrast around the liver, and you can see a a perforation from a duodenal ulcer. Without the positive contrast, you would see the pneumoperitoneum, but you would have a hard time picking out the cause. Or in this case of Crohn's disease, it's easy to see the dilated bowel and the narrowed bowel in Crohn's disease. Uh, again, positive works really well. We've used it for many years, but I would have to admit that one advantage of neutral agents would be to look at the vasorecta a lot better and look at mucosal enhancement. So if I'm doing Crohn's these days, I will be using water as the main contrast agent. Now there's a lot written about perhaps eliminating contrast altogether. Perhaps if we eliminate contrast, we can save time. And surely in the ER literature that's coming up a lot, particularly in the literature written by ER docs, Emergency Radiology Monthly or Emergency Physician Monthly. Contrast is unnecessary for most abdominal CTs. And the article goes on, and I'll just show you the um, one of the key quotes. Routine use of contrast is unnecessary, and it's both oral and IV. Uh, at least that's what the literature says over and over again. Unfortunately, many radiologists disagree. Those radiologists are bad people. Is their objection based on a sound analysis? Hardly. It's a matter of preference. They have been using contrast since their residency, or at least since CT came on the scene, and just feel more comfortable. Have they made an honest effort to compare results with or without? Probably not. Do they care that all contrast will add two hours to the ED stay? Probably not. Well, the fact is, you don't need to wait two hours, but I think giving oral contrast really gets rid of a lot of the pseudotumors in the stomach and proximal bowel, and giving it does not delay the study. If you give the contrast promptly, patient drinks it promptly, by the time you get the patient to CT, by the time you get the patient on the table, it really is gonna work in your advantage. Now, we do like IV contrast. I think if you don't use IV contrast in many of the pathologies, you're gonna miss things plain out cold. And in other cases, you're gonna find pathology, but you're not gonna be certain specifically what that pathology is. Now, we typically, except for stone disease, do not do non-contrast CT in the ER setting and do not routinely do delayed phase imaging. Again, we're trying to balance information with radiation dose for the patient.
In most of our cases, we use bolus triggering, though for younger patients, fixed delay works very fine. We never use test bolus technique. We do test bolus in coronaries, but not in abdominal CT. And you can see when you do a triggering point, you set the trigger depending on how fast you inject and the scanner you have. The faster you inject and the faster your scanner, a higher trigger point. So in the abdomen, on a 64 slice, a trigger point might be 200. With a dual source, it might be 270. And you can see when you time things correctly, you get a really good enhancement, 500 for example. And then because you're scanning fast enough, the contrast is homogeneous throughout the vessel. And you can see very nicely on this MIP imaging how nice you can see the SMA and celiac as well as the aorta with no issues. We like to use thin sections, 0.75 millimeter slice thickness every 0.5 regardless of the uh, speed of acquisition. It's critical in all of CT, but especially in the acute abdomen, to go simply beyond axial imaging and multiplanar and 3D are routinely used. So let's look at some of the very specific issues. One issue is small bowel obstruction. We mentioned before that the two most common abdominal issues are stone disease and small bowel obstruction. We're not going to discuss, we're not going to discuss stone disease. Remember, stone disease, non-contrast CT is what you want to do typically. Small bowel obstruction continues to be a problem. It's a challenge for the clinician. It's a challenge for the radiologist, but we do it better than ever with CT. Some numbers. Substantial cause of morbidity mortality accounting for 12 to 16% of hospital admissions. Most patients with SBO are treated successfully with NG tube decompression. However, the mortality of bowel obstruction ranges up to 8% and may increase as high as 25% if bowel ischemia is present and there is a delay in diagnosis. In this article by Paulson that's well worth reading in radiology, it talks about that CT is the best tool, sensitivity and specificity for over, with over 95%. Now when you look at causes of bowel obstruction, there are many, but at the end of the day, adhesions is still number one. When we look at suspected or known small bowel obstruction, we're trying to really answer questions. And thinking about the questions really makes our job easier. First of all, does the patient have small bowel obstruction or is it other causes for the patient's symptoms? And if they have small bowel obstruction, is it partial or complete? And if we see small bowel obstruction, can we determine its cause and we can determine how the patient should be managed? medically or surgically. When you have a simple obstruction, typically it's a good outcome, management is conservative. But in more complicated obstructions, morbidity and mortality relate to time of intervention. With a 24-hour delay, mortality can go up to 25% versus as low as 1% if done promptly. And if it's not treated within a reasonable time, the mortality rate is 100%. Now when you look at small bowel, we look at the typical findings. We look for wall thickening, which means if I can measure the bowel, it's too thick. Over three millimeters is a good number. We look for enhancement. Is there increased or decreased enhancement? That's a very important feature for looking at the presence of bowel pathology. Some etiologies, for example, ischemia could do either increased or decreased, and maybe in the same patient, depending on the phase of acquisition. We look for positioning of the bowel. Is it obstructed? Is there a hernia present? What about the mesenteric fat? That's often a good sign 
of other pathologies. We look for dilatation under 2.5, we don't worry, but over 2.5 we say is obstructed. We look for this small bowel feces sign, which looks like a material feces like look material within the patient's small bowel. It's a very good sign for showing you a transit point. It's probably more common in patients with adhesions than let's say obstruction due to a tumor. And again, we're looking at transitions. I've always made the point that in axial view, it's often hard to appreciate transitions, while in coronal, it's easy. In this case, you see the dilated loops of bowel layering together, and then the more distal bowel has extensive feces sign present, which you track up to a point in the right lower quadrant. And you can see at that point, there's no mass present, uh, there's no hernia present, but at that point, you realize there has to be a transition, and that has to be a band, which in fact this was. This patient went to surgery, the band was cut, it was a few millimeters in size, and it was an adhesion secondary to appendiceal surgery 25 years earlier. So even a tiny band can cause big trouble. On CT, the band itself typically is not identified, yet we can infer its presence when there is abrupt transition from dilated to collapsed bowel without an identifiable cause. People talk about a beak, which the last case showed. You also, as I mentioned, look at enhancement. In this case, you see several things. There's dilated bowel, left upper quadrant, minimal ascites, and poor enhancement. And that ascites is problematic. That always makes me think about ischemic bowel. And when you look at this carefully, and especially in the coronal, you realize what you're dealing with is a mid-gut volvulus with internal hernia. The bowel is not enhancing like it's supposed to. Uh, this bowel is ischemic. Now, sometimes the patients go to surgery, they undo the twist, and the bowel is viable. In this case, the bowel had to be resected. If this was diagnosed, this not diagnosed as we did, this patient would have died. But again, you can see very nicely in the coronal, the transition point, the twist, and the decreased enhancement of the patient's proximal small bowel. These closed-loop obstructions are typically caused by adhesive bands or internal or external hernias. Closed-loop obstruction can lead to a volvulus, which leads to impairment of venous outflow, followed by arterial ischemia. With a closed-loop obstruction, what you typically see is C or U-shaped distended loops of bowel converging toward the site of obstruction. And again, the site is very clear on CT, particularly on the coronal views. Now, there are several other things we can look at in terms of closed loop obstruction, and I think there are many good examples of what we can see. I think it's very important to really look carefully things interactively when you look at small bowel obstruction and perhaps what we should do I'm looking at the clock here and a couple of you look very thirsty so why don't we do this why don't we stop right here and let's pick up a discussion of small bowel when we return in let's say take a 10 minute break and we'll come right back I'll see you then bye